Hi, travelers. Today is Thursday, April 13th. On today's The Continental Sports Podcast, Jake Query from Indianapolis's 107.5 The Fan and co-host of the Query and Schultz Podcast gives us an inside look into all things Colts offseason. We open with Dan Snyder finally leaving the DMV and Odell Beckham Jr. giving a reason for Lamar Jackson to stay there. We talk NBA play-in as well as take a deep dive into the first rounds of the NBA playoffs. NHL playoffs are also here, and we give a prediction as to who will take the stroll on the ice with Lord Stanley's Cup come June. We finish the show, as always, with our off-the-maps and long hauls of the week, as well as give our predictions for the week ahead. Make sure you check out our link tree in the description of this episode, where you can find the links to our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter accounts, and you can listen to us on your travels on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and more. Okay, let's get started. Okay, today is Thursday, April 13th, and guys, we finally get to stop talking about Dan Snyder and the Washington Commanders. Well, Josh Harris is the new owner of the Washington Commanders, buying the team for $6 billion, and he currently is not the first not the first team to own, be owned by Josh Harris, currently the owner of the Philadelphia 76ers and the New Jersey Devils of the NHL and also a soccer team out in Europe as well. And you see how successful the Sixers and the Devils have been in recent memory, especially the Sixers. Uh, they're a team that has a chance to really win the Eastern Conference this year. But we got to mention Magic Johnson. He's part of this group, of course, owns the Dodgers. They've won the World Series and been probably the best team in baseball over the last six to seven years. But it's an addition by subtraction because you're getting rid of Daniel Snyder. So it doesn't really matter who's the owner of this team. The fact that Daniel Snyder is no longer the owner of the Washington Commanders is the first step in the right direction for a franchise that was kind of the gold standard or one of them in the 80s and the 90s and throughout the last 20 years have really been irrelevant because of how terrible Daniel Snyder has been as an owner. Back in 1999, Daniel Snyder bought the team for $800 million and selling it today for $6 billion. So that's, what, $5.2 billion more than what he bought it from. So that's definitely not a bad turnaround as far as uh, an investment goes on his end. It is the highest uh, franchise has ever been sold uh a lot of people know this but rob walton uh bought the broncos uh uh however long that however long ago that was but uh that was for 4.65 yeah a couple years ago that was 4.65 so this is almost a a billion and a half more than the than the last previous set uh record for a franchise which is pretty amazing it just it shows the growth of the uh nfl and the Commanders haven't even been good for the last 20 years or so. I think they've won one playoff game. Or the last time they won a playoff game was 2005, I believe. They, it's been a very long time since this team was competitive. Like, can you imagine how much the Dallas Cowboys are going to go for once Jerry Jones finally decides to sell that team? That's going to go for about $12, 13000000000 billion. They're the most valuable franchise in all of sports. But, I mean, this has been a long time coming. Daniel Snyder, we know, has probably been the worst owner in all professional sports on and off the field. Um, th- this is a franchise that was once proud, and they've been just kind of the butt of jokes for the last 15, 20 years or so. Uh, I, it's time for the Sean Taylor statue to go up. It's time for the uniforms to get reexamined. Like, th- this has to be a, a new start for the commanders. And I've seen people in Washington celebrate this more than they won or more than they celebrated when the Nationals won the World Series in 2019. Kind of tells you how bad of an owner Daniel Snyder was. And this certainly makes the NFC East a lot more interesting, obviously with the Philadelphia Eagles and their recent success and the Cowboys 
And obviously the Giants last year did get to make the playoffs. So could this bring the Commanders up into the ranks in the NFC East and even potentially the NFC as well? Well, you guys alluded to it a little bit. Are you guys surprised by how much this team did go for? I mean, as part of the deal, you get FedEx Field as well. That's part of the deal. But we all know that that's breaking down at might only have a year or two left before it officially just collapses to the ground. You you said the team has not been good uh, in the last recent history. Uh, I'm really surprised that it did go for so high. Other other people as part of Harris's group is uh, Mitchell Rails, a uh, billionaire in the D.C. area. And then, of course, Magic Johnson, as you alluded to, Zach. But I, I'm really surprised by this, uh, uh, by this value that they put on the commanders. I think Forbes originally put them as 5.6. And I, I know a lot of people were hesitant to bid for that $6 billion just because they didn't want to go above what Forbes, Forbes were, was basically valuing the company at because I think they also agreed that this company might have been overvalued by Snyder. Personally, I'm not surprised that it's gone for $6 billion. I mean, this is the NFL. They just print out money like it's nothing. And you're talking about a franchise in Washington, D.C., one of the biggest cities in the United States of America. So, no, I, I'm not entirely surprised. This is definitely a franchise you would think is worth more than the Denver Broncos. They just sold for $4.5 billion in the last year or so. And you're in a bigger city. You're in the NFC East. And the NFC in general is kind of worth more than the AFC because of the market size of their city. So, no, I'm I'm not really all that surprised that it went for $6 billion. Yeah, I'm not surprised either. Well, we'll find out for sure. I mean, there's all all signs point to go in this deal that it, it will officially get done. Uh, but uh, May 22nd and 24th in Minneapolis, uh, owners meet once again where the, where the deal can be officially approved and signed off by the league. So, We'll see what happens there, and uh, I know a lot of people in D.C. are ecstatic right now. This is their Christmas. This is even more than Christmas for them. They've been wanting Dan Snyder gone from the D.C. from D.C. and for, uh, as an owner of the Commanders for for a really long time now. So this is their day. Uh, what else uh, NFL news that we have going on? I know new helmets were released today. Um, you know, I think things have been pretty quiet on the uh, just free agency and uh, draft rumors going on. I think people are just kind of laying low until they they find out what happens with the draft and how their teams uh, finish up in the draft here uh, coming in the end of the month. Yeah, I think the Odell Beckham signing was a bit of a surprise because we don't know if Lamar Jackson is going to be the quarterback next year. This kind of tells me that he has to think in some degree that Lamar will be, even though he's getting $18 million a year, because I don't think Odell wants to go to a team just for the money. He wants to go somewhere that he was loved or that he was wanted, and he kind of said that in his press conference today. I think Odell can still play. I think he gets a lot of flack, and I don't really know why, because the last time we really saw him in action, he was a big part of why the Rams won that Super Bowl. I had some big catches in the playoffs had a the first touchdown in the Super Bowl he, he's a very good receiver and probably more of a number two receiver than a number one receiver but I think Odell can certainly play but I, I would be surprised if he decided oh I'm just going to take 18 million dollars to go play for the Ravens to go play with Tyler Huntley at quarterback so does that kind of indicate that Lamar comes back I'm leaning a little bit more in that direction than I was say a week ago yeah it's hard yeah, to believe that they would have it's hard to believe that they would have signed Odell Beckham junior without at least some indication that Lamar Jackson was coming back. Uh, I mean, 30 years old at this point in his thirties, uh, $15 million they, they signed him for. So that's, that's definitely a gamble. And especially for the ball, uh, for the Ravens. I mean, a lot of people forget that Ravens are not a team that really spends high money on 
wide receivers and wide outs. No They're kidding. just not a team. So I was really surprised when I actually saw Beckham go to the uh go to Baltimore because I uh yeah, like I said, just the recent history of the uh of the Ravens is not to invest in wide receivers. And especially now that they are so uncertain on their quarterback and whether or not he's even coming back next year. Well, personally, another team that I'm not surprised that Beckham didn't sign with is the Cincinnati Bengals even. You know, I know they have a lot in the wide receiver room, but could they have added added an extra third guy to the receiving room in Odell Beckham, who's been a veteran? And, you know, what the Ravens paid him, I mean, you know, could the Bengals have paid that money? Maybe, or definitely another team that needs a third wide receiver. The Giants, obviously, you know, his former stop, obviously his former stopping grounds in New York, uh, you know, where, where they were pretty interested in him, Dallas as well. But uh, obviously the Baltimore Ravens come in and sign Odell Beckham as well. Yeah, I'm really interested to see what uh, a good wide receiver is going to look like in a hard balls offense because like I said it's just really something you don't see with the Ravens they're really more of a running team and short passes uh along the along the middle for like four or five yard gains they're not really a team that goes for these long hauls with these uh deep throws for you know these really uh a-list wideouts we don't really see it with the Ravens so I'm, I'm excited to see it this year and I really hope that Lamar Jackson comes back so he has a, a an elite quarterback to throw him the ball um Let's go into uh, NBA now. We, um, we NBA is the, the playoffs are coming up uh, middle of next week. Playing games, uh, just finishing up these next couple of days. Uh, Friday, we have the remaining playing games to um, uh, to finalize who will be the te- uh, eighth seeds uh, okay. for both the Eastern Conference and Western Conference. So. Uh, yeah, what are you guys' uh, thoughts on the NBA playoffs? Are you excited, or what, any? Uh, what, what are your thoughts as we head into Friday and uh, get these final playing games? Yeah, definitely excited. I'm a little intrigued by both of these games. When you look at how the Bulls won yesterday, they were down 18, 19 points yesterday, and then Zach Levine went god mode. Uh, Demar Derozan was fantastic down the stretch. Uh, Patrick Beverly contributed. The Bulls had a fantastic comeback. Now they're going against a Miami team that got out-rebounded 63-39 against the Hawks the other night, which is just baffling to me. And you look at this Miami team, I think they can be a team that's a tough out in the Eastern Conference. I'm not sure Milwaukee wants to face them as a number one seed. I think they'd obviously be favoring that series, but I think that would be a difficult one for them. As far as the Thunder and the Timberwolves are concerned, OKC knocking off New Orleans last night. I, we can get on a Zion tangent. I want to talk about Zion a little bit later, but we're not going to do that right now. Uh, I want to see Anthony Edwards show up. He went three for 17 against the Lakers. Like, we've been a little bit better. They win that game. Carl Anthony Towns played very well. The Timberwolves should win this game, but OKC, you talk about a team that's got a lot of draft picks in the future and a big-time prospect line going down the road, a team that could potentially sneak into the playoffs. Got to give a lot of credit to to Sam Presti and this uh, organization, this front office, for putting them in the position they are. Josh Giddey, Shea Gilgis-Alexander. I think Shea Gilgis-Alexander should be first-team All-NBA, personally. I think that's going to be a fun game to watch as well. Anderson definitely needs to show up for the for the Timberwolves if they have any chance of Rudy Gobert's going to play, by the way, as far as I can tell. On on Friday, yeah, no, I, I believe his his suspension was only one game, so yeah. I I definitely expect the Timberwolves to beat the Thunder. Uh, I know a lot of people 
at the end of the NBA season, we're really hopeful and the Timberwolves even make a playoff run. And what they showed on Thursday or Wednesday night was definitely not indicative of a team that's going to make a playoff run. Uh, like you said, Zach, I mean, Anderson was basically a no-show for Minnesota. Uh, nine, nine points in his outing on Wednesday night, three for 17 shooting. Uh, he missed all nine of his three-pointers. So he's definitely going to need to show up and play better along with uh, bringing uh, Gobert back. But I think once those two things happen, which I do expect them to happen, I think Timberwolves do end up uh, eventually taking over the Thunder. But you also mentioned the Heat. I mean, the Heat just looked flat-footed. Uh, I, I don't I, I don't have a lot of confidence for the Heat. I think their era uh, is over. I mean, they lost Game 7 of the NBA Finals in the 2020, but I think ever since then, over the last couple of years, they've really been on the decline. Uh, I, I and I think the Bulls pretty. I think the Bulls out handle them on uh, Friday night as well, and then they end up eventually going on to face uh, the the Bucks in the first round of the Eastern Conference uh, championship or finals, it's uh, playoffs. So, but yeah, so it'll be uh yeah. What are your predictions? I guess just going into is that is that who, who you guys think is going to win as well? Yeah, you, do you have uh, Bulls moving on and then Timberwolves moving on, or 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 do you have something different on your end? I, I got Miami. I think they'll beat the Bulls. I think Jimmy Butler will do just enough to beat the Bulls. And then I've got I'm with you. I've, I'm on the Wolves to win that game. I don't think Anthony Edwards can play any worse. I think Rudy Gobert coming back will help them at least on the defensive end anyway. And I think they'll knock off Oklahoma City. So I got the Heat and the Timberwolves. I got both home teams. What's your most uh, interesting matchup in the first round uh, going into the playoffs? So let's let's jump a little bit forward in the in the next week. Uh, I think mine is the Cleveland Cavaliers and the New York Knicks. Uh, Julius Randle has to show up for the Knicks if they have any chance of being the Cavaliers. I think Cavaliers have looked really good all year. Um, I mean, Jared Allen and Evan Mobley just completely dominate down low, and I don't think the Knicks are going to have the size to really compete against that. But I think for any any chance for the uh, Knicks to really come away with a win in the first round. Julius Randle will have to play a little bit better than he's been playing recently. Um, I'm also intrigued by the, the uh, Sacramento. Uh, Sacramento and uh, Golden State Warriors matchup. A lot of people are not picking Sacramento to come away with uh, the first round uh, victory. They, they actually, I have anonymous from what i've been seeing the warriors you know warriors in five warriors even in four a lot of people are picking and i was i was surprised by that i know a lot of people were saying that it's it's veteran presence against basically people that have no playoff experience at all i mean we know that sacramento hasn't been to the playoffs in 16 years but let's just start there were you guys surprised about this uh everyone taking golden state and uh everyone kind of sleeping on the kings not surprising i mean the kings obviously you know have a lot less playoff experience. You know, this is the first time in, I believe, 15 years or so that they're in the playoffs. And the Warriors are the defending NBA champions. They're, they have a dynasty as well. You know, I expect the Warriors to, to come out and, you know, maybe not even win the series. But I expect the seven-game series here with the Kings having the home court advantage and then the Warriors, you know, making a play for this series. So... I think it could be a seven-game series either way. Yeah, I think it's a seven-game series. And you look at Golden State, they just had a horrific road record, a horrific road record. They they were just – they were, I think they were they were 11-30 and 30 on the road this year. That's one of the worst records in the NBA. But it's hard to go against the starting five. When you talk about Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Steph Curry, 
They've won four championships in the last seven years. It's hard to go against them. I think Lakers-Grizzlies is going to be fantastic as well because I don't totally have a ton of trust in the Grizzlies. Dylan Brooks is out there talking like, we want the Lakers. I don't know if that's what you should be hoping for because you got Anthony Davis and LeBron now going against you and John Morant's now countersuing 17-year-olds. So I don't know where his mind is at right now. But I think the, I think the best series is going to be Cavs next. As a diehard Cavs fan, I think Donovan Mitchell is going to be a little bit too much in that series. I think Evan Mobley might be defensive player of the year. I think he can control Julius Randle. And if he can do that, I think the Cavs backcourt is unequivocally better than the Knicks backcourt. So I got the Cavs winning that series in six. I think the Kings Warriors series will probably be the best series in the first round. Only about an hour, hour and a half away from each other, Sacramento and uh, Golden State, uh, San Francisco there. So it'll be, I mean, hey, Warriors might not even be an away team for many of the games that they play in this series. So if that's another indication that the uh, Kings might be having trouble because we all know that the Warriors fans will definitely travel an hour, hour and a half to go see them. So we all, I mean, the Warriors have been playing very bad, like you said, Zach, this year away, but they might not even be an away team for some of these games, depending on how well the fans travel. Uh, let's go to the Eastern Conference, though. We got, uh, how about Suns uh, Clippers, by the way, just kind of right before we get to the Suns Clippers? I think it's a four or five would be fascinating. You look at the Clippers, a team that they we've kind of been waiting for them to take that leap for about three or four years. You're going against Chris Paul and Kevin Durant. I don't think there's a team in the NBA playoffs that's going to be under more pressure than Phoenix this year. Oh, after Chris Paul, absolutely. This is his year. Uh, he needs to win it this year. Better if be. He doesn't it'll be and Durant big, too. And yeah, Kevin Durant. I yeah. I mean, the Clippers though. Everything I hear is that Paul George has to play. If the if if he does not play, the Clippers really don't have a chance to really compete against the Suns. Uh, it's an intriguing matchup. I think Phoenix has. I I think Phoenix even going to six. If Paul George excuse me, does not play for the Clippers, I would even say you could say that it would be a disappointment and a letdown for the Suns to go to six or seven. That would be a that would be a loss for the Suns. If Paul George does not play uh, against the Suns uh, for the Clippers uh, in this first round of the playoffs, that definitely yeah. will be a bad sign for the Suns, and that's actually a loss in their books. They need to kill the Suns if uh, – or the Suns need to kill the Clippers, excuse me, if Paul George does ultimately end up not playing for, uh, the, for uh, Los Angeles. But again, let's go to the East. East is definitely, I think, a little bit less exciting than the West. Uh, Sixers, um, and we got the, excuse me, Sixers and the Nets. Everyone's saying the Sixers are going to blow out the Nets. Uh, the firepower for uh, for the Sixers is too high. Joe Embiid is the ultimately the MVP. I think it's pretty much unanimous at this point from what everyone's saying. He's, he's definitely running away with it and most likely will be winning that in a month or two when the voting comes um but what are your thoughts on the boston and uh atlanta matchup boston is definitely gonna win but do you guys see this game going to seven no no, no i think this is a quick series i think boston and five i think trey young has one game where he goes crazy but other than that the Celtics are just better yeah trey young definitely has a chance to make games interesting though he needs to play obviously amazing and so does everyone else on the team but i agree i think it goes to five i don't i don't really think this game can go anything past five i think i think atlanta will win one home game it and then i think after that boston's pretty much gonna do the gentleman sweep and ultimately end up going to that second round pretty comfortably then uh in about a week or two uh masters this last uh the last weekend definitely an ugly masters 
uh, John Ram, first Masters, second major for him, uh, first Spanish winner of the Masters. Um, it's always it's always sad to see the Masters have bad weather. Uh, it's such a beautiful course. I mean, people literally will tune into the Masters and just have it on in the background just to watch the nice landscape and watch the beautiful scenery that the TV <laughs> provides to them uh, just because of how nice of a course it was. But just real fast, what, what were your overall thoughts about the Masters this year? Did, did you like it? Did you did you kind of like the chaos that it, it brought? Did you like how, the, you know, play was stopped really indefinitely twice, really messed up a lot of players' momentum and groove? Uh, but it also made the Masters kind of interesting and something that you don't usually see and it help, help some people climb up the ladder boards and other people fall. Yeah, I think this is a great weekend for live golf. Let's just call it what it is. And I know Brooks didn't win, but Phil finished second. Uh, Patrick Reed finished in the top five. Brooks Kepka finished in the top five. I think the interest with the audience was having both PJ Tour and the live tour involved in the same tournament. So, you know, sports, you got to have films in, in some capacity. So I think that contributed to it. I, I would like to see more live guys, especially those top tier guys, be able to compete in future majors. But John Brom had an exquisite back nine performance, no question about it. He took that tournament over and they played 30 holes on Sunday. And as soon as John Brom did not get knocked out by the bad weather, you know, he got the worst draw of the two. Brooks got to play in pretty good weather throughout Thursday through Saturday. John Brom played in bad weather and the fact that it was competitive I thought was an advantage for John Brown but he hit more greens and regulation hit some more putts down the stretch and you know you can have your jokes about live and Brooks only playing 54 holes leading after 54 holes and then not being able to play after that but John Rom is the best golfer in the land. He's won four tournaments already this year. He's made $13 million in, what, four months. And he's already won the U.S. Open and the Masters. I think he's the best golfer on the planet. I think this tournament proved that and then some. And how about Phil Mickelson? I mean, showing up at 52 years old, yeah. doing absolutely nothing since the PGA Championship, finishing tied for second. Ten top three finishes all time in the Masters. That's more than Tiger, by the way, which surprised me a little bit. But... I think this tournament is kind of, was kind of a coronation of John Brom as the best golfer on the planet. Yeah, Phil Mickelson really came out of nowhere. Uh, I mean, I, obviously a lot of people kind of forgot his name a little bit playing on the Live Tour all last year, uh, but, but no, he he definitely yeah he was he was amazing. He he, I think the last just just the back nine. I think he went what minus four minus five just in the back line back uh, back nine alone on yeah, Sunday. He was uh, I think best ball would have shot a 58 on yeah. Sunday. They were spectacular. They both were. And I actually thought, because there was a time there where both Spieth and uh, Mickelson, if I'm not wrong, were only two behind Rom. And yeah. I really thought it was going to be an explosive ending. But eventually Rom did end up uh, running away with it. And you, and you mentioned Co uh, uh, Kepka with Rom. And when play was suspended on Saturday, Kepka uh, yeah. was four ahead of Rom. And Rom actually ended up winning by four strokes, as we all know. Uh, it actually ties the largest comeback in Masters history. Uh, Jack Burke did it. Uh, Jack Burke Jr. in 1956 uh, had the highest uh, comeback, a uh, st uh, stroke differential in one day in an 18-hole play uh, with eight. So John Rand was down six in 96 uh, against Greg Norman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, weather obviously definitely had a lot to do with that too. Like I said, I mean, when play also when play was suspended on Saturday, 11 of the 54 golfers were under par, which is pretty amazing. I mean, it just shows you how bad the conditions were and how difficult the players were dealing with the conditions. But 
hey, I mean, it really just kind of shows the versatility of Rom too, being able to to play through it and you know play with the elements, work with the elements, and you know not using it as an excuse and really uh yeah take away uh take ahead of the leaderboard there. Uh, it was the it was the bunny bump uh for the Masters. Uh, it, most viewership in the Masters since 2018 with over 12 million viewers. Yeah, uh, that's pretty amazing. I I mean, there were so many different things that played into this that helped with this viewership number. I mean, obviously the live tour coming back, people wanted to see PGA golfers versus you know live golfers. Like I said, being Sunday helped up majorly too. I, a lot of people home, people home with families. Uh, Sunday is definitely a day for rest. Mm -hmm. Nothing else to really do. Nothing else on TV. So that definitely helped the numbers too. But still, still encourage, uh, still uh, encouraging, just considering the fact that. You know, the PGA did have such a tumultuous year with the Live Tour and, and all the golfers going away. But it was glad to see that bump and the uh, the Masters back in its spotlight, spotlight like it should be. Yeah. Very much a growing sport, golf. So, mm -hmm. NHL playoffs also happening. I know we talked about NBA a, a little bit ago, but NHL, as it always is, follows the same path pathway and timeline almost as the NBA. Um, just like the NBA, Western Conference seems pretty open to anyone, while the East, you know, one or two dominant teams. But uh, let's talk about Boston. What are your guys' thoughts on Boston this year? Do you uh, do you believe the hype, or do you think they're going to weather out pretty fast in, in the playoffs here? I think they weather out pretty fast here. And, you know, in the NHL, not always the best record wins. Not always the President's Trophy team wins. So could that be the first round? Could that be the second round? You know, obviously the later rounds, but I don't think Boston will win. I don't think Boston is going to win it all this year. And the reason I say that is because in the East, it's pretty, it's, it is up for grabs, but you have Carolina, you have the Rangers, you even have the Devils, you know, teams that are very su successful, you know, Tampa Bay, obviously, you know, looking to go to the cup for the fourth straight year. And I think that, you know, there's going to be a lot of, a lot of competition and a big target on the back of the Boston Bruins, this playoffs. I think the Bruins can handle it. This is a veteran team that's been to Stanley cups. They've been to conference finals in recent memory. I think they've got a pretty straightforward path to the Eastern conference finals. I think it's going to be either the Rangers, or the devils. My guess is the Rangers. I think they're a little bit more uh, a better offense than the devils. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's going to be Bruins Rangers in the East. And then at West, I'm going with Connor McDavid, the Oilers going against the Avs. I mean, Colorado of course won the cup last year one of the most consistent franchises in the NHL. And I think it's going to end up being the Bruins versus the Abs. And by the way, you talk about a great series. You talk about a team that set the all-time wins record against the defending Stanley Cup champion, if that happens to be the case. So I think the Bruins can handle it just fine. I think they've got the experience to do it. And then, I mean, either way, we're getting either the defending champs or we're getting the best player in the NHL, Connor McDavid, the Stanley Cup Finals. So I think it's a little chalkier than most NHL postseasons have been in recent years. Boston's 35-7-3 against Eastern Conference opponents this year. So that's another big uh, insight for them as to why they're going to uh, uh, cruise along the East Eastern Conference uh, playoffs here. But I, I agree, Zach. I think Oilers are definitely my choice 
for uh just the the finals or just the whole Stanley Cup champions in general. Uh they had the best defensive player of the year in Mattias Ekholm. Uh everyone talks about um excuse me, everyone talks about Connor McDavid, but they actually no one really talks about uh Leon Dreskaldi either. Uh both these guys are number 1 and number 2 in points scored in the league. And actually uh Leon is fourth in the league in goals scored. So uh, McDavid's not the only high scorer and uh, high contributor to that Oilers squad. And like I said, their goalkeeping's great, and they have the best defender in the league as well. So it's not all just McDavid. I think Oilers have other things to offer as well as, as to why they're going to uh, uh, take away the Stanley Cup this year. Zach, mm-hmm. what's your prediction this year for the Stanley Cup? Or I, I'm I, sorry, Justin. Justin, what's your? I think you, you you alluded to it, Zach. You said the Oilers, right? I have Bruins versus Avs, and I'll, I'm going to take the Bruins. Okay. So how about you, Justin? I have Carolina out of the Eastern Conference and out of the West. I'm going with Vegas. I think that's going to be a very interesting matchup for sure. Any reason why Vegas? I'm just curious. Any reason why, particularly, or just you just? I think do you just like the what what how they have it going on there? I think they have a lot going on there. I mean, they have a lot of uh, you know they have the goal scoring going on. You know, Mark Andre Fleury still being there. I believe you know he can get. You know, he has that playoff experience with them. And I think, uh, you know, I, I can see Vegas out of the West going up against Carolina. Very Carolina being a very desperate team out of uh, out of the Eastern Conference as well. Well, if that turns out to be come to fruition, then every all-time record holder in the NHL, NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, the winningest regular season teams, would not have won the championship because MLB at the 2001 Seattle Mariners, they did, they lost in the ALCS uh, in the NFL. Then it was the 07 Patriots. They lost the Super Bowl, And then of course the 73 nine warriors in the NBA lost to the Cavs, my great Cavs team with LeBron and Kyrie in the 2016 finals. When that would be quite the uh, interesting thing where the all time winning its regular season team in all four major sports did not go on and win that season's championship. I think you're going to see it this year. I really think you're going to see the Bruins, you know, not win at all. I think you're going to see them, you know, fall short. I think a, I think a long shot, uh, kind of a dark horse for this playoffs is the Los Angeles Kings. I mean, I know people are definitely talking about them, but they have really well-balanced lines. Uh, best home record in the Western Conference this year out of any team, you know, in the, in the Western Conference. Uh, their biggest setback was actually their goalkeeping. Uh but they improved that uh, during the trade deadline when they got Eunice uh, Kobersalo from the Blue Jackets. Uh, 0.915 save percentage uh, so far as we enter the playoffs, end of the year here. Uh, top 10 in the league in the NHL in that number. So, like I said, they were really balanced before uh, the uh, trade deadline that happened about a month or two ago. And only real uh, only real uh, knock that they had was their goaltending, which they actually improved. And uh it took care of that answer. So I, I think the Los Angeles Kings can definitely be a team that might uh, shake some heads this year. I'm a Blue Jackets fan. Did you have to remind me? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Blue Jackets had to sell out, though. I mean, they, I mean, they weren't. No, yeah. it was the right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, next year it'll be there. It'll be their year next year. Maybe we'll, we'll see. I've been saying happens. that for 23 years now. <laughs> well, speaking of which, though, Penguins, uh, another team that did not make the playoffs this year, uh, longest streak, and I know I mentioned it in a previous episode as well, but the longest playoff streak out of any American professional sport 
came to an end with them missing the playoffs yeah. this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Penguins were 16 straight playoff appearances. Uh, 2006 was the last time they did not make the playoffs. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it was, it's interesting. Like I can't even imagine, I, I can't even think of the last time that the Penguins were not in the playoffs. So kind of like the Capitals in that sense. I think the Capitals went for 10 years that I think the Capitals just missed out on a 10 year uh, uh, streak in the playoffs, but yeah, no, it's Capitals and Penguins are always those teams that you just kind of always see in the playoffs, and it's really surprising when you don't see their names on that uh, on that bracket heading into. The last time they didn't make it, the strike year, I I want to say mm-hmm. it was the one year they didn't even have a season, 04 and 05. But I think it's pretty much the end of the current Pens era with Crosby and Malkin and Ron Hextel as we know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sad, sad. The Detroit Red Wings had the. I believe had the longest playoff streak in the NHL history. Is that yeah. true? Yes. Yeah, 30, 30 straight years, was it? I think it was 26, 27. It was close. It was close to 30, 30 straight years. But thanks to the Islanders, they ended the Penguins' playoff streak. As an Islander fan myself. Well, now we're going to switch gears and bring on Jack uh, Query from Indianapolis. He's going to talk to us uh, about the Colts what they're doing in the off season and uh, how they can get back to their winning ways when uh, back in the Peyton Manning era and uh, finally get out of this stretch of uh, just no man's land. Uh, not, not the worst team in the league, but definitely not the best team. And they, I know their fans definitely want to see them get into the playoffs here in the near future. So God gonna... knows we need to. Yeah. Right. I want a quarterback but... for God's sake. Get well, Lamar. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Yes. I want Lamar. Well, Jack's gonna, Jack is going to teach us all about what they need to do this year and really what they're looking to do uh, as, as we head into the draft at the end of the month here. All right, we now welcome on Jake Query from 107.5 The Fan, host of Kevin and Query on uh, Monday mornings in Indianapolis and has his own podcast, uh, uh, Query and Schultz, uh, that airs on Monday nights. Uh, where can they find that show, Kevin? Well, I appreciate you having me on. Jake, um, the morning Jake. show that I'm on is on 1075thefan.com, and then the podcast what you're talking about is on ISC Sports Network. So uh, that can be found at our website, which is queryandschultz.com, or on the ISC Sports Network in the state of Indiana. And as you as you mentioned, every Monday night at 7.30, that airs. And then uh, I guess I put the other hat on in the morning time, and I do radio from 7 to 10 uh, Eastern in the morning on 107.5 The Fan. Well, Jake, very uh, you're very uh, in the know with Indianapolis sports uh, sports uh, radio and uh, Indianapolis sports in general. What's going on now uh, uh, in the uh, city of Indianapolis? Just have the combine finish up uh, in your city. Uh, it's hosted there every year, as we know. Um, Colts, though, let's talk about the Colts. Um, going into the season last year, they were projected to be projected to be one of the well, at least a mediocre team. But ended up uh, starting the season with seven losses in a row. Uh, didn't get that first win until uh, the Raiders midway through the season. Kind of take me through the mindset of the fans, you know, as that as you started the season off, and then as you got to that third, fourth loss. What were kind of the mindset of the fans? Like, how is it changing going from a team that they were hopeful for to maybe even make the playoffs at the beginning of the year until to a team that looked very dim to make the playoffs? Uh, going in the middle of the year? You know, it's interesting because you're right. I mean, in particular, I think there were a couple of things that came into play for optimism with the Colts and in Indianapolis. 
The first being, to be honest with you, is the division. Because when you're a division with Houston, Jacksonville, and Tennessee, who I think there was some question mark about Tennessee coming into the year, but um, there was a lot of optimism because of the fact that Indianapolis, they've known for a while that they were going to have to eventually develop a young quarterback. But at the 11th hour, just before the year began, they were able to sign Matt Ryan. I think that a lot of people felt like Matt Ryan still had some juice left in the tank. And that with the dynamic running back of Jonathan Taylor, a playmaker like Michael Pittman developing at wide receiver, that they felt like that Matt Ryan was going to be able to kind of find a little bit of a fountain of youth, like Phillip Rivers had done a couple of years prior uh, before the, the Carson Wentz experiment basically imploded on Indianapolis. So there was optimism for certain. I think very early on, you know, all of a sudden everybody went, whoa, wait a minute. Like Matt Ryan was flat. His arm looked uh, washed. To be quite frank, well, and to be quite frank, and and look, Ryan was a consummate professional. He came in, he was, um, he was a good leader. He was a good person in the community from right away. So there were no complaints about him as a guy, but I think people were just disappointed to see his level of play and how flat they were. So then, what happened was in the real watershed moment in the season for the Colts was about a quarter of the way through the year, a little under the halfway mark. Jim Irsay basically grabbed the steering wheel and said, "Look." At this point, I want to see what we have in Sam Ellinger. He's the young quarterback that we have. He's out of Texas. He's more mobile than Matt Ryan. And let's go right to him right now. And this is a permanent move. And everybody's thinking, whoa, like this is, you know, I knew that we were struggling here if you're the Colts, but, you know, this is a, a drastic move. They made that move. Sam Ellinger came in. They dropped two more. They were essentially at that point completely out of playoff contention. And so, then the issue that came into play was what happens now because you're essentially out of it. So they kind of yo-yoed back and forth with Matt Ryan. They made the head coaching change where they went ahead and fired Frank Reich. They brought in Jeff Saturday as the interim coach. That came with a lot of controversy. So quite frankly, it was just a year of turmoil. And it was a year where they never got any footing. They ended up 4-12-1. and And now they find themselves with the fourth overall pick. And I think the time has come where it is going to be a quarterback. You're right back to square one. So – uh, in a conference that's loaded with young talent at quarterback position, the Colts are now relegating themselves towards the back of the line in that, and you're a couple of years away. I can only imagine that the front office of the Colts were making different changes this year with the quarterback and then the coaching staff, um, just to kind of keep the fans interested. Am I right by saying that? Were they just trying to give the fans some kind of spark for such a poor start of the season? Were they just trying to keep the fans uh, invested in the team? I mean, it's a great question, and I think it's a pretty astute question because the interesting answer to that would be it probably depends on who you ask. You know, I think Jim Mersey, the owner, um, who's been a very good hands-off owner for the majority of the time that he's on the team, and this was the first time that Jim Mersey, who saw his father, Bob Mersey, through the mid-'80s, overstep in a lot of areas from ownership and has wanted to be hands-off and not wanted to be his dad. This was the first time that I think people started to see a concern that Jim Mercer perhaps had crossed over into that area of getting over-involved. So from Mercer's standpoint, in making the move to Sam Ellinger, I think that was Jim Mercer, quite frankly, thinking that that was the best chance that his team had to win football games. And I think he was on an island in that regard. Then when he made the coaching change and went to Jeff Saturday, I don't know if that was so much about fans as it was Jim Mercer truly believing that Jim Mercer, or that Jeff Saturday, excuse me, was a guy that could revamp his roster and his locker room and give Jim Irsay some intel 
on what guys are guys you can run with and what guys are guys that need to be moved on and, and that kind of thing. So it did create some turmoil. It seemed to usurp the authority of Chris Ballard, the general manager, and it created kind of a havoc. So I think the intention in the beginning was good in spirit, but it did not go over well, and it left fans thoroughly confused as to what was going on. So it almost sounds like Jeff Saturday was brought in to kind of clear the path for next year and get a better uh, insight into the locker room and the coaching staff uh, for this year. 100%. Up. I, You know, Jeff Saturday, I think when he came in, Jeff Saturday is greatly admired. You know, Jim Mercer has a great admiration for Jeff Saturday. And I think that when he brought him in, I think there were two things in play. The first is that I think that Ursay thought that Jeff Saturday was really going to work out and that Ursay was going to look like an outside-the-box thinker that was going to be praised for his non-conventional approach of finding an interim coach. And the other is I think that he really, truly has a great respect for Jeff Saturday's leadership ability and, and ability to decipher not only talent but work ethic and that he basically was doing an audit. And I think Jeff Saturday came in under the assumption that that's what it was of let me look and see what guys here are guys that this franchise needs to have in the locker room. Then once Saturday got into it, I think his competitive nature came into play and then he wanted the job and he felt like he was the right guy for the job. And I can assure you, Jeff Saturday 1000% felt that he was the right guy long-term for the job. Obviously he didn't end up getting that chain Steichen did. And you know, Jeff Saturday's back in Georgia and probably will eventually go back to ESPN. Great guy. Absolutely, um, you know, great friend, great teammate, all of those things, but they decided to go in another direction. I read online that there was a petition to get rid of him. I know it might have been more yeah. of a tongue-in-cheek, but there was actually a petition petition by the fan base to get rid of him. Is that correct? Uh, the petition was to make sure that he wasn't hired and retained full-time, yeah. So <laughs> he was, I believe, the eighth interim coach in Indianapolis Colts history and Baltimore Colts history, if you go back to Baltimore. So in the history of the franchise, it was the eighth time that they've gone with an interim coach. Uh, seven of those eight were not retained or brought back as a full-time coach. The only to actually become a full-time coach off of that opportunity was Ron Meyer back in 1987 or 86, actually. So the petition was to make sure, hey, you brought him in here as the interim. You rode out the year with them don't hire him as the full-time coach and whether or not the petition had any factor, I'd say probably not, but the result of it, of course, is exactly what the petition asked for. So now they bring in uh, Shane Steichen, uh, former or e former Eagles offensive coordinator. Uh, do they really believe that he's going to have the potential to bring back this Colts offense? I mean, the defense last year, I would say was mediocre. Uh, they actually probably ranked even lower than mediocre or worse than mediocre as far as stats go, but a lot of that was just because the offense was so abysmal and that they were on the field so much. But Shane Steichen, what are the fans thinking about Shane Steichen? Are they hopeful for him, or are they just thinking that uh, they, you know, they need to see more, they need to see at least a year or two from him before they start to give him high hopes? No, I think they're optimistic. You know, I, listen, anytime you make a coaching change, especially come up, coming off of 4-12-1, there's really nowhere to go but up. And the NFL is a copycat league. And the NFL is a league where people, you know, see opportunities in some areas and, you know, they get excited. And in the case of the Philadelphia Eagles and what they've, you know, this has been the trend of the NFL now, right? Young, upstart, energetic, offensive-minded coaches. And the Eagles have obviously had success in those guys going elsewhere. And in addition to that, you look at the last few, with the exception of Andy Reid, 
you know, most of the teams that are rising in the NFL, that's what they have, young, energetic guys. So people are, I think, enthused by that. And the reality is that the Colts, I've always said, it, it's it helps to have the X's and O's, but you got to have the Jimmys and Joes. And I think that people know that Indianapolis has to massively upgrade their offensive talent. Their offensive line regressed last year. They have a wonderful running back in Jonathan Taylor, but he didn't play due to injury for the vast majority of the year, probably due to circumstance as well. Michael Pittman's a good receiver and a reliable target, but he's probably not a number one. He's probably more served as a really, he's not a playmaking number one, but he's a stable, stable target. But they just lost Paris Campbell to free agency, so they need stretch play guys. They don't have anybody that can stretch the field. They don't have anybody that keeps defenses from a pass standpoint honest and wondering, you know, yards after catch types guys. And that's what they need. They need guys in open space. They don't have any of that. They got tight ends that, as somebody told me, are battleships. Take them forever just to turn around. They don't have great blocking tight ends. They got a lot of pieces that they need on the offensive side of the ball. Defensively, I think they're in pretty good shape, but their cornerbacks now have been depleted a little bit. They traded Stephon Gilmore, who I thought had a good year. Um, you know, they've got a couple of guys that they're going to have to look at in free agency. So defensively on the line, I thought they showed some promise. I thought they were adequate last year. They were in really bad situations, as you'd mentioned, because the offense was so abysmal. So that's not the side of the ball that's of concern. Offense certainly is. So they have a 36, uh, fourth pick overall, obviously, 36th pick, 80th, 107th, and 141st. Uh, do they use any of these on defense this year? In Boy, that's a great question. Um, I think it's possible one of the – listen, I, I would be stunned if they used the four on anything but the quarterback, quite mm -hmm. frankly. Um, you know, if they're freeing up some money. Or, or is there a veteran they could go out and get a quarterback? Possibly, but I, I don't see it. I think they know – the time is now, and it would surprise me if it's not Will Levis. Anthony Richardson's in play, but at the fourth, they may have the fourth pick, and I think you know their fourth choice uh, because I think we can say that you know Stroud, Young, and possibly Richardson go before Levis, probably in that order. Levis and Richardson probably depends on who's picking, um, but I think they're okay with taking the fourth of those four. I don't think they think there's a huge gap, four to one. Then it comes down to. What do they do with that 36 pick? If there's a lockdown corner, I think that's going to be tempting for them. Um, they've really made some moves, you know, on the defensive line. They've got young players. If they can keep them healthy, that I think they like in the pass rush, like Quiddy Pay, And, you know, in the tackles, they're in pretty good shape. DeForest Buckner has been a really nice acquisition for them. So the defensive backfield, though, I don't think you can ever have enough corners. That's just the reality. And they don't have enough as it is right now. And you can never have enough of them. So losing a couple of them already, and, and in particular with the trade of Stephon Gilmore, they're going to have to address that situation. So, yeah, I could see them using a pick or two on DBs, and then the rest of them I think you load up as much as you can on offensive talent. Uh, last year, 17 points a game, uh, 30th in the league, uh, 201, uh, just just under two, 202 passing yards per game, 23rd in the league. Uh, 110 rush yards per game, 23rd in the league, 4.8 yards per play, which was also, I think, a top, you know, 25 plus in the league. So definitely need an offensive help. Um, I think, like you said, if they, if they use anything on defense, it's going to be a cornerback. Uh, I think that's pretty interesting to say. Um, do, do they use nickelbacks much, Colts? Or do they use... They do. Do they... I mean, Kenny Moore's been their nickel, but then they, you know, and they... 
it's really interesting because they've got guys like Isaiah Rogers, who, who a lot of people thought were going to get a lot of time at the corner position. I think, I think he's a good player, Dallas Flowers as well. But they, they kind of fell out of favor over the course of the year. Um, you know, they will use Nichols for sure. And that two years ago, that was Kenny Moore, which is what ended up getting him a big contract. Then they slide him in. They're using him for more reps. And he really dropped off last year. But the anticipation is that he's not going to be released and he's going to be around. So, um, you know, Gus Bradley likes to do a, a lot of different things. So that's an area I'm telling you, I have always felt like, and I think the Colts learned this last year, cornerbacks and offensive line are two areas of a football team. The line that I've used on the radio a million times is they're like cell phone chargers and sunglasses, man. You can never have too many of them. Because there's always one that you lose or always one that you break or always one that just you thought was going to be good and you plug it in, it doesn't work anymore. And they found that out. And so I think those are two areas you got to load up, especially on O-line as well. I mean, Quentin Nelson had a, you know, he was an all-pro player, really dropped off last year. Ryan Kelly at the center position is an area that may be a release in order to free up money because he regressed. So they've got a lot of holes. I mean, the Indianapolis Colts are in a situation where they have a lot of holes. At first, you thought it was a retool. It might flat out be a rebuild. And, of course, it starts in the quarterback position. Matt Ryan sacked top 10 in the league last year, despite only playing 12 games. Uh, so definitely, like you said, the offensive line, something that needs to get bolstered up here uh, after that fourth round or after that fourth overall pick, uh, using the later uh, second and third uh, plus rounds. Uh, definitely get some offensive linemen in there to help out the quarterback. He also ranked top 10 in interceptions, which, of course, a lot of that has to do with the uh, being pass rushed and uh, having less time uh, to control his passes as well. So I agree. Definitely get that offensive line bolstered up and we'll see what they can do with that next year. Uh, but let's talk about the quarterback real fast. Just just to kind of pivot back to that. I know I was reading a lot online about Bryce Young. Um, I, I don't know if that's something that is accurate that I was reading uh, according to the fans and what they're looking for. But if it really is Bryce Young as the one they want the most, one, why Bryce Young? And two, will he be available at four or if they really, really want him, are they going to have to trade up to get him? No, I think what happened was, you know, there was a comment made by Jim Irsay at the end of a press conference where Chris Ballard was asked about quarterback, and Irsay, as they were wrapping up, said, hey, the guy at Alabama looks really good. And, you know, does that mean he was talking specifically about Bryce Young? I mean, there's a lot of players from Alabama that could go in the top of the draft. <laughs> And that, I think, yeah. led to speculation that Indianapolis was enamored by Bryce Young. The combine is right here in Indy. Bryce Young showed up. He was a little under 5'11". I think he was small. I don't think the Colts are bothered by that. But I do think that they really liked C.J. Stroud. And I think a lot of teams like C.J. Stroud at the combine. And that's why Carolina moved up to one. Conventional wisdom would say that if Houston is at two, they probably take Bryce Young second. If they don't, because I think Stroud's going to go number one at this point. Young then probably goes to Houston at number two. And then Arizona sits at number three, and that's the wild card because Arizona could trade out with somebody who wants to get a quarterback and moves up into the three spot. And that theoretically would be Richardson out of Florida. And if it's not, if Young falls, if Houston passes on Young because of his size, I don't think Young slides past three. And that because I think somebody would move up to get him in fear that Indianapolis would take him. So, I think the Colts are are okay with – there are two things the Colts really, really, really covet. And when I say the Colts, I mean Chris Ballard, their general manager. He loves draft capital, and he likes to hold on to assets. 
I think that what happened was, I don't know this, but I've got a pretty good feeling on it, that the Colts basically looked at the four quarterbacks that I just mentioned, and the Colts determined that the gap from one to four of those quarterbacks was less than the gap of the cost of what you would give up an asset to move up one or two picks to secure the quarterback that you want. In other words, I think they looked at it and said, we're okay with the fourth of these four guys because we don't think that it's really that big a difference from the first of these four guys or the second of these four guys. We do think that giving up a first round pick, you know, or a late, you know, like giving up our fourth to drop back, you know, whatever, all of the different variables that would come into play and the assets they would have had to give up to move up a spot or two. I just don't think that they felt it was worth it. So I think they are comfortable. I've been told that Jim Merced really likes Will Levis. I think Levis would probably be, in conventional wisdom, the fourth of those quarterbacks to go. So I think they know that that's a possibility, even if they stand pat, that that's what they're going to end up with. Yeah, Will Levis, uh, same color blue, look, would look that's uh, right. pretty pretty similar in a, in a Colts uniform. So uh, I think it would look look good for the fans too. They wouldn't it wouldn't be a shell shock to them. It would be very uh, similar to what they're used to. That's what freak too, right? I mean, Richardson has uh-huh. a lot that you like. I, I do think it's safe to say at this point that assuming everybody stays pat, that Stroud and Young go one and two. I, I, I do think those will be the first two taken off the board. Another thing that Jim Irsay and his staff like is usually having high cap space, uh, at least for the last five years. Uh, this year, uh, not as high as cap space. Uh, projected to only have about like $13 million. Now, obviously, they'll very most likely get rid of ja- uh, Matt Ryan. That's going to free up 17 right there, but you don't expect the, uh, the cap space to be an issue. I mean, I know a lot of their capital is probably going to come through the draft with with rookies with uh, smaller contracts. But as far as like signing anyone, like whether that be a, a, a cornerback or a wide receiver, you don't do you, do you expect that salary cap uh, one of the lower ones this year going into the offseason? Do you expect it to be a problem? Uh, good question. And you're right. Chris Ballard does like salary cap space. Um, he's been accused in Indianapolis often of holding on to too much of it. Um, they did release Matt Ryan. That's been done. So Ryan has been released. That frees up $17 million under the cap. So that gives them some flexibility. Um, Ryan Kelly's another one that they could probably part ways with. Trading Stephon Gilmore gave them a little bit of cap room. So they have a little bit of breathing room there. Um, are they using it to push all in on one player like a Lamar Jackson? I, I don't actually think so. I think probably the more realistic play here is that they're creating space to then re-sign their own. And that means Jonathan Taylor and Michael Pittman, when their second contracts come up, they got to make sure that they have the money to to compete financially with those the other teams that are going to cover those guys, in particular Taylor, if they want to hold on to him. And I think that they do want to hold on to him. I don't personally think that the running back position is one that should be financially prioritized in the NFL in 2023, but I think they think differently than I, and I think that he's somebody they really covet. Well, especially Taylor. I mean, are they are both the front office and the fans, I think even more importantly, are they are they worried about Taylor just after this year? I don't think so. I, I listen, I mean, from a health standpoint, I guess you're always worried about running backs, but in terms of you know, I, I think the interesting thing is, you know, Taylor's a wonderful player, right? He's a great player. Mm-hmm. But how much is running back? How much do you win with running back in the NFL in 2023? You know, that that's always been my question. I mean, the leading run the best running back in the game is Derrick Henry, and he's on the trading block. You know, last year in the Super Bowl run, 
the leading rusher in the postseason was Joe Mixon. He had 79 yards on the game. So I don't. I think the Colts have found out and learned maybe that the the run they perhaps over prioritized and that you've got to go through the air. Look at the teams that are that are winning in the NFL. Kansas City. You know, Jalen Hurts. You know, Philly runs the ball. Don't get me wrong, but they do a lot of that with their quarterback and. It's a fungible position. The running back position is a fungible one. So I think they have to assess the the return on investment at the running back position and whether or not they should put a hard line on how much they'd be willing to pay somebody to run the ball. Do you think the run game, uh, not just the, with the Colts, just NFL in general, do you think the run game is less valued now just because there's so many more, there's so many more running quarterbacks available? Uh, like I think the – well the, – a big part of it is when the rules committee made the changes in the mid two thousands in terms of, you know, at the line hand checks, the way that you can guard receivers, it opened up and that was done for basically for Peyton Manning and the Colts because Bill Pulling was on the rules committee and didn't like the aggressiveness that new England was able to get away with things at the line on Marvin Harrison and Reggie Wayne and the Colts receivers and the rules committee changed things. And that's why, you know, in passing numbers just exploded. And now with the you add in the fact that you have durable running backs, guys like Trevor Lawrence, Justin Herbert, Jalen Hurts, Patrick Mahomes for that matter, that can extend plays with their legs. I think in 2023, 2024, moving forward in the NFL, the current trend at least, is you win through the air. And you win through the air and you facilitate through the air by your quarterback being a guy that can still beat you with his legs. Indianapolis didn't have either of those two things. They didn't have a quarterback that could throw. Matt Ryan couldn't throw deep. They didn't have a quarterback that could run because he was old, no fault of his. Phillip Rivers, when he played well, could throw, but he couldn't run. Carson Wentz couldn't do either. So, you know, they've been, since Andrew Luck left, they've been stuck in purgatory. Yeah, definitely. So, I, do you think uh, Taylor is a trade option this year? Yes. I don't definitely. think they, here's the thing. Do I think he's a trade option? I think I think the Colts are in a position where anything's in play. Are they actively shopping him? I don't. If somebody called and made an unbelievable offer, would they entertain it? I think they would. I also think that he probably has more value to Indiana. As good as he is, and he's a wonderful player, I think Jonathan Taylor probably has more value to Indianapolis than he does elsewhere, especially with Shane Steichen, who, you know, those guys, Shane Steichen comes from, under, you know, the, the Norb Turner tree of having young guys out of the backfield, but Darren Sproles type players that can open things up and facilitate into the passing game. So I think Jonathan Taylor will be utilized more in the passing game for certain. Um, so is he a trade option? I don't think, I think they would take the phone call. I don't think they would make the phone calls to see who'd be interested. Colts uh, in the ESPN preseason rankings, the as they say, way too early rankings. Thirtieth uh, in the, in these polls, uh, only behind the Cardinals and Houston, uh, or only in front of Cardinals and Houston, I should say. Now the the answer to this is obvious, but say they get well, they will get a quarterback this draft, and they bolster up the offensive line, maybe even get a couple corners and uh, get get a, a a wide out as well that can help with that quarterback. What do you uh? Just in, as a general question, where do you see the Colts next year? Say say all that happens. Say everything goes great in the draft. They play all their cards right in the in the offseason and free agency. Um, 
are they are the Colts making the playoffs? Do they do they have any chance? Or are you thinking, or is the fans thinking, let's just take this one more year to kind of rebuild, and yeah, the, by twenty twenty, yeah, before I get ready to go. Indianapolis's biggest problem is the same problem that Houston's going to have. It's the same problem that Cleveland's going to have. It's the same problem, frankly, Baltimore's going to have. Pittsburgh's going to have, and that is. Justin Herbert, Patrick Mahomes, Joe Burrow, Trevor Lawrence. You know, those guys, those guys are also Josh Allen, for crying out loud. Tua, if he's healthy. Those guys are all sitting in the left lane right now. And the Colts are sitting in the right lane with their blinker on, waiting for somebody to let them in. Move them. Yeah, go ahead. We got an opening here. Where's it come? Trevor Lawrence, I think the world of, I think he's a Peyton Manning level talent. I really do. I think Jacksonville did a good job this year of starting to build a foundation around him. The two things that you can never factor in. One is you can never factor in health. You know, you never know who's going to get hurt. You never know for the Colts or within the division what teams are going to be decimated by injury. So you have that. But assuming that the trajectory for the Colts is is where, you know, the other thing you can't factor in is, is how a rookie quarterback is going to play. That was the other thing. So, but assuming that trajectory, then you take a year to get your quarterback established, Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a year away. Then you take another year to to get the pieces around them solidified. Now you're two years away. And then at that point, you got like a 28-year-old Josh Allen, a 29-year-old Patrick Mahomes, a 25-year-old, a 24-year-old Trevor Lawrence, a 26-year-old Joe Burrow. All those guys in their prime. It's tough. I mean, it's going to be tough for them. And this is a franchise in a city that's been used to quarterback greatness and sliding from the greatest ever, perhaps in Peyton Manning or one of them, into the, the greatest prospect ever in Andrew Luck. You just move from one to the next. And people around here thought it was easy all the time like that. And this is the reality in the NFL, and the Colts are finding out that it's a return back to normalcy for them and Waters finding its level. Yeah, and let's not forget, too, we know he doesn't have a whole lot of time left, but let's not forget that Aaron Rodgers Rodgers most likely going to the Jets too. So that's another problem yeah. they have to deal with <laughs> in their in their conference uh going forward. So that'll be that'll be interesting to see what happens there. But yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, it's one of those things that people don't really think about, especially people that aren't really Indianapolis fans, kind of in outside looking in. You made a good point where there are all these quarterbacks in your in your conference are gonna uh, in the AFC here are, are going to be getting into their, into their prime in a year or two. So that's something that the culture definitely going to have to look forward to and try to manipulate their roster the best they can to fight that. Yeah, it's, I mean, and again, forever, the Colts were the one that, they were the blueprint people were chasing. They had Peyton Manning, they had Marvin Harrison, they had Reggie Wayne, they had Dallas Clark, they had Dwight Freeman, they had Robert Mathis, they had Edron James, Joseph Adai, on and on and on. Um, and people thought it was easy. I'm not saying the Colts thought it was easy, but fans thought it was easy. And now they're like, wait a minute. This is what it was like when they moved when they moved here in the Mayflower trucks in 84, and you went through Arch Schleister and Mike Pagel and, you know, I mean, Chris Chandler and Jeff George and Jack Trudeau and Don Mikowski and Browning Nagel. I mean, on and on and on. Uh, it feels like they're back there. All right, Jake. Well, this has been awesome. I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for giving us that great insight into the Colts, and uh, I'm hoping they uh, can turn around next year for you guys. Hey, man, my pleasure. Anytime. I like the West Virginia banner in the background. I like Huggy Bear. I saw West Virginia almost beat Kansas this year, and Allen Field Lawrence was pretty cool. Uh, but anytime, man. Keep plugging yeah. away, and if you need, you let me know. 
Uh, well, Jake, like I said, this has been great. Uh, really appreciate your time, and we'll have to do this again sometime, okay? All right, man. Anytime. You know how to find me. All right. Jake, uh, Jake Query from uh, 107.5 The Fan. Uh, we'll catch you again sometime, okay? Sounds good. All right. Take care. All right. Let's finish off the show with our off the map and long hauls of the week. Zach, who was your off the map of the week? Yeah, can we give a little credit to Mike Brown? And like I said, I mentioned earlier, I'm a diehard Cavs fan, so I'm certainly aware of Mike Brown's coaching abilities or sometimes lack of abilities when it came to the end of the LeBron era. But I got to give him full credit for what he's done with the Sacramento Kings, taking this franchise, the number three seed, getting the ABCA Coach of the Year, deservedly so. This is a franchise that hasn't made the postseason since 2006. Mike Brown is maybe the best defensive coach that I've ever seen in all my years covering or uh, watching the NBA. So, I, I got to give this guy all sorts of credit. We all remember what happened with the Lakers. That didn't go so well. Uh, he has been in a long time assistant with Golden State. I think is a big, a big contributor to why they've won as many championships as they have. Now being the head coach of the Sacramento Kings and turning this franchise around, Mike Brown is my uh, off the hall. Uh, people aren't really talking a whole lot about him, but they should because he's done maybe the best coaching job anybody's done this year. Justin, off the map. Off the map is the number one biggest market, even though they might be a long haul, but they're the number one biggest market, and that's New York sports. Every New York sports team this year in the 2023 and 2022 seasons, uh, except for the New York Jets, have made it to the playoffs. So that includes the Mets and the Yankees, and now you have, and the Giants as well, made a playoff appearance. Now you have the three hockey teams, the Rangers and the Devils, potentially playing each other in the first round, unless Carolina loses and the Devils win tonight. And you have the New York Islanders as well going into the playoffs, as well as the Knicks and Nets. So it looks like New York sports is back. You know, we'll see what happens with with Aaron Rodgers and the Jets, Uh, you know. If they they actually acquire him or not, people are talking too much about that. So I guess that's my long haul of the week, as well as my off the map being New York sports. For the first time in 29 years, three of of their NHL teams and two of their NBA teams have made it to the playoffs. The Jets will be on that list pretty soon. Pretty much. Definitely. Definitely. I'm going to go with uh, the Rays. Uh, I know a lot of people are talking about the Rays. Obviously, they're – they just today with their nine to four victory over uh, Boston, they uh, they have tied the uh, modern day MLB record for the best start of a season at uh, 13 and 0, uh, of course, tying the Braves in 82 and the Brewers in 87, who also have the same number. But no one's really talking about just the, the stats and the numbers behind the Rays impressive uh, start of the season here. Uh, so they won their first nine games by four or more runs. And that actually hasn't been done since 1984. And I mean, they're doing it with just explosive offense, 92 runs scored, which is the first in the NBA only allowed 26 runs, uh, uh, excuse me, MLB first in MLB only around 20, 26 runs. That's also first in the, in the, in the show OPS nine, nine, four, five ERA two, one, seven. Uh, so they're playing amazing uh, baseball right now. Uh, I, I think it's just people are only talking about just the number 13-0, but I really think people need to just kind of pay attention to just how well they're playing just outside the numbers. I know a lot of people are saying that they're 
particular uh, competition hasn't been the greatest, but it's still 13 and 0 is 13 and 0, and it's definitely something impressive that needs to needs to be recognized with. Zach, yeah. who is your long haul of the week? Long haul of the week is the pitch clock. Why? Because the average time of a nine inning game is now two hours and thirty eight minutes. They're pushing up. Beer- ending beer sales to the eighth inning. I think they're doing this in Philadelphia now. This is great for Major League Baseball because now batting averages are up, stolen bases are up because you got the bigger bases, and now games are taking a shorter amount of time. And this isn't less baseball being played. This is less guys adjusting their batting gloves, guys grabbing their crotch, spitting tobacco, all that kind of stuff that isn't needed in a baseball game. This takes you back to the 50s and 60s when Bob Gibson and Sandy Koufax were pitching and games were routinely taking around a similar time back when Major League Baseball was the game's national pastime before the NFL kind of took that over. So Major League Baseball, for the first time in a long time, has positive momentum going in their direction. It'll be interesting to see how long this lasts. But I think Major League Baseball is now in a better position than they've been in years. They finally figured out something to kind of curtail the amount of the game because it had been plotting for a very long time. Now we're starting to get more into a rhythm and it's a lot more friendly toward television viewers. And we all know that sports are a television entity above everything else. So major league baseball and their pitch clock is my, uh, is my off the wall this week off the hall. Cause it's doing a great job. I am going to talk. I'm going to actually mention the Bruins as my long haul of the week. We talked about it earlier. Uh, Bruins uh, kind of being a team that a lot of people are saying are going to win the Stanley cup this year. Uh, obviously people have been talking about them at length, just having the most uh, wins in a single season in NHL history. But I think people are giving them a little bit too much hype going into the playoffs. Only eight of the 36 teams that have ever won the President's Cup have gone on to win the Stanley Cup. And actually the last team to do it was the Chicago Blackhawks. And this was over a decade ago when it was a shortened season caused by blackout or by, by lockout. So, right. uh, yeah, I think the Bruins are definitely a good team, but... I, you know, as history would, would say, I don't think they're going to end up actually going on to win the Stanley Cup playoffs. And I think people just need to uh, cool a little bit uh, about their hype. And, you know, let's see them play first a couple of rounds and see how they do. But that number, uh, eight out of the 36 teams have only won the Stanley Cup playoff. Uh, only eight of the 36 teams that have won the President's Cup have gone on to win the Stanley Cup playoff. playoff. So I think they just, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan and a big believer of history repeating itself and stats not lying when it comes to uh, things like that. So I definitely don't think the Bruins are going to win the Stanley Cup playoffs this year. And I think that people just need to uh, recognize uh, th- th- that history will repeat itself. And Bruins might be coming into the playoffs a little bit too hot as we enter uh, end of April and early May here. All right, good show, guys. Let's finish up with our predictions. Uh, Jack, do, what do you have a, a prediction this week? My prediction is that the Los Angeles Lakers are going to beat the Memphis Grizzlies in the first round. The Lakers have had their way with the Grizzlies in recent years. They went 2-1 and one against them this year. Of course, we remember the T. Morant, uh, Shannon Sharp kind of game. But I think Anthony Davis, as long as he stays healthy, I think that size is going to be a problem for the Grizzlies. And you talk about LeBron, who hasn't been in the playoffs for a year or so, uh, averaging over 40 minutes per game. He, you know he's going to drop 25 to 30 points per game. Austin Reeves has played well as of late. I think the Lakers now have been in playoff mode really since the first couple weeks of the year when they started 2-10. and 10. The Grizzlies are not a team that I totally trust right now, especially John Morant because of his off-the-court stuff. So I'm going to take the Lakers as the seventh seed to beat the Grizzlies in the first round. 
I'm going to say the Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay Rays lose tomorrow night against the Blue Jays and their historic streak of uh, the start of the season comes to an end. They will not be the most winning uh, start in uh, modern day MLB history. They will not go 14-0 and they, uh, they will end up falling to the Blue Jays. Uh, I, I'm going to say by a score of 8-4, to four, Blue Jays uh, come away at home uh, victorious and uh, stop the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, historic start to the season here. Justin, how about you? Let's finish off the show. My prediction is that the Carolina Hurricanes will win against the Florida Panthers tonight, and they will. that means the Florida Panthers will face the Boston Bruins in the first round, as well as a rivalry of as well as the Hudson River rivalry being renewed in the playoffs between the New York Rangers and the New Jersey Devils. All right. Well, that's the show, guys. Until next week, we'll all see you. We'll see you then. But until then, uh, keep on traveling. Okay, guys. We'll see you next week.